Okay, we are just one more Sunday, just today, uh, in 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to read the whole chapter again, including the previous verse, the last verse of chapter 12. Um, I'm not going to go on beyond verse 3. It's really, we're just looking at the introduction. So let me read that now. Then next week, Lord willing, we'll go on to other things. Where does the slide start? I forget. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I grew up. I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly But then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. O Lord, we have received your love in Christ. And regardless of how long we have walked with Christ, we are still completely staggered and blown away that our God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, we know that life in this world is short. Eternal life is forever. We live in days of struggle and affliction and tribulation and persecution and difficulty of every kind, but yet Jesus will come again someday. Deliver us from this corrupt world and we will be together with you forever. Lord, what a glorious truth that we have received such love. Oh God, thank you that it's in our heart by your Spirit that we have your indwelling Spirit Let us manifest all that you've given to us, those graces, those virtues, but especially love, which is the greatest thing. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm actually not a movie, much of a movie person, so I've kind of gotten off on a bad track by talking about movies, but they're helpful sometimes in illustrations, so I'm going to start again, okay? Um, You probably have seen the movie, The Ultimate Gift. Came out what six or eight, ten years ago. My mom gave us that movie. You remember it was about a young man. 
He was a bit wild. He was the uh, grandson of a, of a businessman, of a, a billionaire, I believe he was. And after the grandfather died and the will was being read, it turns out that the grandson had to uh, get engaged in a number of tasks which he had to complete within so much time. And if he completed those tasks, he would be, he was promised the ultimate gift, okay? Well, okay, inheriting millions or perhaps billions might be the ultimate gift, but I want to tell you what is the greatest gift, the most excellent gift. It really is way better than millions or even billions of dollars, okay? And it is love. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, we can easily be deceived into thinking that Christian living is a matter of performance. It's a matter of what we do. And the Corinthians thought that. The Corinthians experienced an abundance of extraordinary gifts of the Spirit, tongues, prophecies, miracles, things like that. They abounded in this church in Corinth. And yet Paul called this church infants, infants in Christ, people of the flesh. Because what really matters, what is really important, what is really the priority is love. Mature Christianity is not performance. It's love, okay? In fact, Jonathan Edwards, the great New England reformer and uh, revivalist, so to speak, back some centuries ago, said, all the virtue that is saving and that distinguishes true Christians from others is summed up in Christian love. All the virtue that is saving, that belongs to regeneration and belief, and that distinguishes true Christians from others is summed up in Christian love. Beloved, I, I fear that we, not just we here, but we as Christians, especially in the West, that we've switched the price tags. And we value things that are actually lesser, and we have considered as less important things that are actually greater. And the one thing that is even the greatest. So I do want to borrow a little bit from Jonathan Edwards this morning. Uh, his commentary on 1 Corinthians 13 is a book called Charity and Its Fruits. I commend it to you, especially if you like Edwards. But Jonathan Edwards, who is probably one of the great, greatest theologians that the U.S. has ever produced, he said that gifts of the Spirit, and this may be getting a little technical, so I'll try to be careful, but you might want to take down some notes, especially if you like this stuff. Uh, but gifts of the Spirit, Edwards says, can be divided into two groups of two, okay? The first group is common gifts versus saving gifts, okay? Common versus saving. The second group of two is ordinary and extraordinary, okay? Let me tell you what those mean, according to Edwards, okay? So by common gifts or common operations of the Spirit, what he means is they are common to all people. They are common to believers and to unbelievers. Not necessarily all people, not necessarily every person, okay? But meaning that both believers and unbelievers have these common gifts or common operations of the Spirit. According to Edwards, these include things like common influences, common convictions, common illuminations, common religious affections like gratitude and sorrow 
and so forth. Okay, so those are the common gifts of the Spirit. So the second part of that, or or what's contrary to that, is saving gifts. Now, saving gifts are gifts that are found only in true believers, or what he calls the godly, okay? Things like saving faith and the love of which we speak right now. So common and saving. The second group of two is extraordinary. Now, you probably know what the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit are. We sometimes call them charismatic gifts, things like tongues, of course, and prophecy and miracles and things like that. And when we call them extraordinary, we actually don't mean that they are superior gifts, just that they are giving, they are not given, rather, throughout history. In other words, they are not ordinary gifts of the Spirit in terms of God, the Holy Spirit, giving them or dispensing them to people throughout history, okay? So they are, it's not that they're superior, it's just that they're not given throughout history. In contrast to that is ordinary gifts, which are actually found in the church at all times, in every era, and throughout all of history. So you got that so far? I told you it's a little bit technical. This is Jonathan Edwards. You got to get deep if you get into Edwards, okay? The thing you need to know is that ordinary gifts are not common, okay? Ordinary gifts like faith, hope, and love are given to believers only, not to unbelievers, okay? They're distinctive to believers. But extraordinary gifts are, in fact, common gifts. This might not not be familiar to you, but the extraordinary gifts are, in fact, common gifts. So again, while they're not given during every age, they are given, yes, to both unbelievers and believers. Consider the words of Jesus in Matthew 7 at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name. Those are the extraordinary gifts. And then Jesus said, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what what I think will be shocking, perhaps, on Judgment Day, is that it's going to be revealed that many who possess these extraordinary gifts are not actually believers. I'm not talking about all. I'm just talking about some. I'll give you more biblical examples. There was a certain Balaam. Look him up in Numbers chapter, what, 22, 23, and 24? Look up Balaam, okay? Balaam was a wicked man who died for his sin, and yet Balaam prophesied. You can read his prophecies in those chapters. I think I'll also give you just one more example. How about the certain King Saul? King Saul also died uh, being rejected by God, died in unbelief, and yet it was said of Saul, is King Saul among the prophets? Saul also was led to prophesy. And therefore, it must be, as Paul teaches, that love is superior to the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit. Now, I know this is counterintuitive to the way we think and to the way we use language because we always think that extraordinary is better than ordinary, okay? Do you want an ordinary job or do you want an extraordinary job? Do you want just an ordinary marriage and family or do you want an extraordinary marriage and family, okay? 
you get the idea, all right? But Paul, understand that Paul wrote this letter, you know this, in an era, first century, mid-first century-ish, and to this particular church, Corinth, where these extraordinary gifts were abounding. Just look, for example, we won't turn there, but later on, just look in chapter 7, in chapter 12, verse 7 and following, okay? You see the listing of there, and Paul says these were given, uh, these were of great benefit to the church. He says, for the common good, for the building of the church, for the edifying of the saints, okay? For the growing of the church, and these signs and wonders were, were done as a testimony to the risen Christ and His living, powerful presence in the church. But Paul says, as excellent as these gifts are, Okay, without love, Paul says they are really nothing. If I have not love, the inspired apostle wrote, I am nothing. I gain nothing. Now, Paul makes that point, I think, in plain, unvarnished truth. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love. So if I speak perhaps with this spiritual gift of tongues, or even if I speak, if I could speak, as the angels speak, okay, I am nothing but a noisy gang or a gong or a clanging cymbal. Now don't think about musicians up here. These were instruments that, that pagans used in worship. So Paul is saying, if you have these gifts, but have not love, you're no better off than the pagans who worship their false gods. And then he says, if I have prophetic powers to understand all mysteries, and I have all knowledge. Now, you could be like Paul himself, understanding these deep mysteries which are revealed now in the New Testament. You can teach with excellence. You can pray with excellence, okay? You might know all these mysteries. You might have all knowledge, okay? You might be Hodge and Warfield and and Edwards all rolled into one. But if you have not love, he says, you are nothing. In fact, you might have faith that can remove mountains. Perhaps an allusion to Matthew 17, verse 20. If you have faith like a, like a grain of mustard seed, so small, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. But to have the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit count as nothing to the one who has not love, because love is greater than the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit. Okay? Love is greater than the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit. Love is also greater, I will say for the moment, greater than sacrifice. But what I mean by that is religious ritual or religious performance or religious duties, okay? Let me go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, a story I'm sure you know well, where Samuel, who was the ruler of Israel back in those days, of course, and he said to the king, so Samuel represented God, of course, he was the prophet, so he was directing the king and bringing the word of God to the king, and he told King Saul, you need to attack the Amalekites, and he gave this hard order, completely destroy everything, wipe it out, burn it to the ground, okay, kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That's a hard order. 
you need to understand that the Amalekites were sworn enemies of Israel and of Jehovah. In fact, the author notes how the Amalekites opposed Moses on their way out of Egypt as they were making their way from Egypt to the promised land. The Amalekites tried to, try to stop them. They opposed them. They tried to keep them from their journey. And now they're being judged for the wickedness. Back in the Old Testament, you'll see if you have the ESV, for example, not every version, but you'll find this phrase, devote to destruction. That's an important phrase, okay? The Amalekites were to be devoted to destruction. That phrase is a Hebrew word, karam, and it refers to holy war against those things that are accursed by God. These things within the promised land, that is, okay? So these things had to be destroyed. They had to be devoted to destruction, these accursed items, because God was dwelling the holy God was dwelling with His holy people in the holy land, okay? They must be, be removed from the land. And so, of course, King Saul attacked and he won the victory, but he spared the king, didn't he? Agag. I can't get into his background either. I don't have time, but he spared also the best of the animals. And then when Samuel went down to Gilgal and, and met with the king, the king bragged, he boasted, I've carried out the Lord's instructions. I've done all in the Lord's will. Samuel said that, what is this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears and the lowing of cattle that I hear? And Saul said, oh, they brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. And of course, you know what Samuel said, right? Samuel said, to obey is better than sacrifice. Because the motive for obedience is love, Samuel could have said, to love is better than sacrifice. To love is better than all of your religious rituals and performances and practices, which without love is vain. Again, Jesus said to, to some, many will come and say, I did all these great works. I prophesied your name. I did miracles. And yet he'll say, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. And so Paul continues, if I give all that I, weigh, if I give all that I have away, this may well be a, an allusion to Jesus' discussion with the rich young ruler, right? The synagogue ruler who came up to him and said, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus gave him the law to convict him, okay? And he said, all these things I have done, okay, liar, liar, pants on fire. But besides that, Jesus said, okay, then go sell everything and give to the poor. And he walked away because his stuff was important to him, not love. Love was not important to him. Now, giving to the poor is an excellent thing, of course. It's something commended by Jesus and the, and the apostles, and yet, without love, you can give everything you own away, and yet, without love, it's nothing. And then he says, if I give up my body to be burned, presumably as a martyr, if I go to the stake for a profession of faith, but I have not love, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. So let's talk about this. Why is love the most excellent way then 
And it's simply because God's work in redeeming the church is God's creation of a new humanity. Okay, you're going to hear me talk about this a lot because it's important we understand these things that in the fall of man, mankind, Adam and Eve, the entrance of sin into the world, okay, the image of God in which they were made became radically corrupted. We call this in modern Reformation churches, we call this total depravity. It means in the totality of our being, we are sinful. In our thoughts, words, and actions, okay, we are sinful. And so, by that sin, of course, and by their rejection of God's love, Adam and Eve became, if I can borrow from the book of Hosea, lo-ami, which is Hebrew, just means not my people, okay? They were cast out. They became not my people, but God's plan to have a people and a kingdom would not be defeated by their sin. And so God made a promise. We know that as Genesis 3.15, right? There will be a son. There will be a seed who will destroy sin and the evil one. And then in chapter 12, God chose Abraham or Abram back then and called him to be head of a new nation, a new family, giving Abraham a promise that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Meaning from every nation on earth, from every tribe, every people group, every, every language, from all these distant tribes, from the entire globe, I will gather my people together to form my holy nation on earth. Now, Paul spoke of that in Ephesians 2. He said, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Meaning those who uh, were cast off are going to be brought near. Those who once were low on me, not my people, will be gathered into my, uh, by grace, and they will become on me, my people. Many members, but one body. And so that people, that church, that nation is a, a holy people united in love as that creation. Okay, so going back to Ephesians 2, Paul continues. He says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall, wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both in one body through the cross, thus killing the hostility. So we see even way back in, in Genesis, well, following Genesis 3, we see that sin brings division and disharmony and hatred, and disunity, and every form of evil and malice into the human race. But God, determined to have a, a people for Himself, a people for His own glory, a holy nation, okay, He takes some of those people and brings them together to form one united nation, united in love, in love for God, and in love for one another. And therefore, as has been written by people like Francis Schaeffer and others, love is the mark of the Christian because love reveals that we have, in fact, been born again to new life. We have been given the Spirit, and we have, in fact, become children of the holy 
and loving God. Love is the excellence of the believer's new nature by grace, by the working of the Holy Spirit. And so while the, while the gifts of the Holy Spirit uh, are wonderful things, they are not the excellency of a believer's nature. Let me go to Edwards again. He said, regarding these gifts, they're like a beautiful garment which does not alter the nature of the man who wears it. They are like precious jewels with which the body may be adorned, but true grace is that by where the very soul itself becomes, as it were, a precious jewel. Anyone can dress up in fine garments and look fine, okay? But it doesn't change the heart. Okay, love in the heart is a precious jewel of our own soul, of our own character, And so love is greater because it's part of a Christian's nature. It's resident within the person's heart. Whereas the the power to work miracles is not within, it's from without, right? It's not within my nature, it's given to me by God. The extraordinary may be impressive and may look good from those who observe it. But love is is a beautiful heart. Jesus addressed this kind of thing when he addressed and rebuked the Jewish leadership. And he said, you are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous in their long flowing robes and in their shawls and in their Torahs and so forth. But he said, on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So again, love is the sum of all Christian virtue. It's that which distinguishes true Christian character from the nature of the unregenerate. Love is being like God, is it not? John said, God is love. Okay, every child memorizes that verse, right? Because it's so simple. Three, ver- three words. God is love. So love is being like God. To live in love is to live in the image of God. And therefore, love is the nature of the perfect person. The Bible says love is the fulfilling of the law. And the law, the law defines righteousness. Look in places like Romans seven twelve. Okay? So love fulfills the law. Love is the nature of the perfect person. And so because love is the distinguishing character of the Christian, those who don't love don't know God, regardless of how many mighty works they do, which is why Jesus would say to some, or will say to some, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, you workers of hatred and disunity and every kind of evil work, right? John made it clear. This is, this is the words of the Holy Spirit by the Apostle John, not mine. Bible's words, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. If we know Him, by His Spirit and by grace, we possess something of His love as He renews us in His image. And so John goes on and says, if anyone... If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Because whoever loves God must love his brother. 
But the love that Paul describes here, okay, this love that bears all things, that believes all things, that hopes all things, that endures all things, and this love that never ends. Okay, this is the fruit of the Spirit, which Paul mentions first. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and so forth, okay? Meaning, what Paul is talking about, which should be clear in these few verses, is not the natural love that's in the world, the love of all people, but it's a love that's produced by the indwelling Spirit in the hearts of God's true people, okay? The Bible says what? We love because why? Because He first loved us. So the clear implication is what? By nature, before we receive and and experience God's love, we don't love, okay? And so believers who have been loved by God love both God and people because of this indwelling Spirit who is love. And that Spirit's presence producing love or bringing love into our hearts destroys the hate and the natural hatred and animosity and bitterness and selfishness we have by our own sinful nature. Remember, before Paul mentions the fruit of the Spirit, he mentions uh, what I call the, the fruit of the flesh or the works of the flesh, which are produced by the sinful heart. He says they include sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. But the indwelling spirit produced that which is opposite of that, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So we know that. The problem is sometimes we may be inclined to think that the love we have is actually, in fact, artificial fruit. <laughs> Have you ever seen a, a bowl of this fruit on someone's table or counter? Don't raise your hands. And you look at it, you think, oh, that looks delicious. And you grab it, and you're like, oh, it's plastic. Okay? It can be artificial fruit. But what is that artificial fruit then? Well, let's call it limited love. It might be sort of a tolerance, a forbearance to some extent, an acceptance perhaps, but it's not this deep, self-sacrificing love of which the Bible speaks. Remember, and Les read it earlier, when the Pharisees asked Jesus, always testing him, what's the greatest commandment? What's this guy going to say? Right? To love God with all your heart. Then he said, he gave a, a bonus, right, that he didn't ask for. The second is like it. And then he quoted from Leviticus of all places, Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the standard. Love others as you are already loving yourself. As you're caring for yourself, care for others as well. But then to the disciples, Jesus raised the standard even higher. He said, love one another as I have loved you. Okay, I know for sure I can't do that because I know how Jesus loved me, right? He went to the cross. He sacrificed himself for the joy that was before him. 
So he calls us to at least figuratively lay down our lives for one another. And the problem is that love in the church, and I'm not talking about us, just generally, it's often no different than the love that's shared between neighbors and coworkers and perhaps casual friends. It's natural. It sources the human heart rather than the Spirit of God, but the fact that this love is a fruit of the Spirit means it's supernatural. And what is supernatural is literally awesome, like God. It should fill our hearts with awe. You know, as, see, as we observe and experience this selfless and sacrificial love for others, as Christ has loved us, it becomes clear that this love is so distinctive, it's so unusual, that its source must be divine. Because it's clearly not natural love. It's God's love poured into our hearts that then overflows out of us to others, even to our enemies. In fact, this sacrificial love that's described here in the New Testament, so characterized that the early church, that even the Romans, even the ungodly Romans were forced to notice and they would say, see how they love one another. Justin Martyr, his last name was actually not Martyr. He's called Justin Martyr because he was one of the earliest martyrs. His name was Justin Christian martyrs, and he, used to, he wrote, he said this, We who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our en- enemies. There's also Clement, very early disciple as well, described a believer this way. He impoverishes himself out of love so that he is certain he may never overlook a brother in need, especially if he knows he can bear poverty better than his brother. He likewise considers the pain of another as his own pain. And if he suffers any hardship because of having given out of his own poverty, he does not complain. And that love that that first century church tended to display especially early on in Jerusalem, was such a powerful witness of the love of God that the church grew rapidly, as we know. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that's exactly what happened. Their testimony was was profound and deep and powerful to the unbelievers, to the Greeks, and even to some of the Jews because they had such a deep, self-sacrificing love for one another. So what kind of a witness would churches have today if that kind of love was expressed in every church? I mean, how might churches grow if unbelievers around were forced to notice and had to exclaim, see how they love one another? I'm not picking on the Presbyterian church in America because I'm as guilty as anyone else. But I looked at some stats the other day, and the PCA, as big as it is, from 2016 to 2017, the last stats I saw, the entire PCA over one year grew by about 800 people. 
I'm not picking on us, but that's not very much growth. And I'm not saying we don't love each other, okay? Just that we can do a lot better. If you think you love well enough, do you love others as Christ has loved you? That's the challenge. That's a deep, hard challenge. How about your enemies? How about those who mistreat you? How about those who abuse you? Look at the Sermon on the Mount, okay? If love seeks the good of the beloved, there will be evidence. Thomas Watson, this is the, this is the day for quoting Puritans, I guess. He said, faith deals with invisibles, but God hates that love which is invisible. So there's, we need to ask ourselves then, if God hates that love which is invisible, if Watson is right, then how is my love made visible? How is it displayed? In what ways? Look over at Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, a few books over. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another in love, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you are called in one body, and be thankful. You know, in closing, remember the church in Ephesus. By the end of the first century, that church there in Ephesus had, by that time, a long history of a very effective ministry. There are all kinds of activities going on in that. Among them, uh, they knew, they were taught by Paul, they knew sound doctrine, they embraced sound doctrine, they rejected false doctrine, they were even enduring the shame and opposition of being believers in a pagan Greek culture. They were impressive in many ways. And yet, what does Jesus say to them in Revelation 2? You have forsaken your first love. All the performance in the world means nothing without a burning love for Christ and for His church and for the world. God loves the church. He chose her in love. Jesus loves the church. Jesus died for the church. Do you love the church? Do I love the church? As God loves the church, as God loves you, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Earnestly desire the higher gifts, but especially desire the still more excellent way. It's the way of Jesus. It's to be like Jesus. It's the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, and because of that, it is the greatest gift. Beloved, do you long to be like Jesus, I know you do, I believe you do, I do, then love others with the love you have received from Him. And then watch the mighty works of the Spirit that He may do among us because of the love we share. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, these are hard things to hear because we tend to think highly of ourselves But we ha- do we really have this love? Lord, we long for it. We love that we are loved. And yet, oh God, let our response then 
be loved. Let us also lay down our lives, even if figuratively, for the beloved. Even for our enemies, O God, let us love them as we are exhorted in the great sermon which Jesus proclaimed. Forgive us our sins, strengthen us, give us much of the Holy Spirit. We confess this is not in our flesh. This is only by the Spirit, not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, this gift of love. And we pray and ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.